0: For someone that has a big climbing history, they're already very coordinated at hanging on holds and they're already pretty strong. Continuing to use a fingerboard in that context makes very little sense to me because they have to load so heavy because they're so strong that it's kind of risky on the joints. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing
1: Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition tactics, and mental game. And today, y'all, we are doing a deep dive on all things finger strength training with one of the absolute pros on the topic, Dr. Tyler Nelson. Now you've surely seen Tyler sharing his well-researched content on his Instagram and YouTube pages or any number of in-person clinics, conferences, or podcast interviews, including this one here where he's done a couple full episodes, as well as his own podcast, the Camp 4 Human Performance Podcast. Tyler's bringing cutting-edge science to the world of training for climbing, and in the process, he is blowing up myths of training that we have long thought to be true, and in doing so, he's helping climbers from pros to everyday climbers like you and me identify exactly what types of training will take their climbing performance to new heights. In graduate school, Tyler completed a dual doctorate master's degree in exercise science with an emphasis on tendon loading and rehabilitation. He's also a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA, and he teaches conferences worldwide on a host of topics. If you're a patron of The Struggle, you've surely heard the pro clinic that Tyler did with me on the topic of finger power, and today he is diving deep into the science, methodologies, and protocols of how to train strength. And spoiler alert, there's a good chance there's some things that you've been doing wrong, or at least in my case, multiple things that I've been getting mixed up when it comes to finger strength training. So by the end of this combo, I am confident that you're gonna have the knowledge and the tools to get better results in less time with more transfer to the wall, just as he's seen happen over and over again with his many clients. Just a quick update here on my training and climbing for those who are following along. I am just now starting to transition from strength training to endurance training as I begin winding up that energy system in prep for the Big 13A project that I've got at the Red this fall. Tyler and I talk a little bit about that in our conversation today, though the vast majority of our chat is focused on building strong fingers. But the good news is that I'm feeling pretty dang strong right now coming off of a few months of finger training and working on limit boulder sets at my gym. And I've been keeping track of those sessions on the Kaya app. I'm so psyched you guys to share that Kaya is now on board as a sponsor here at The Struggle man, do I love this app. If you're at a gym that uses Kaya, those route setters are logging their problems in the app when they set them so that you can track your attempts, your progress, and share beta right there on your phone. It's a great way to understand your training load and your volume so that you can make sure that you're dialing in exactly what you want to be doing and not an ounce more and, of course, risking injury when you do that. We talk a little bit about that here today with Tyler. And then when you're ready to head outside, that is where Kaya is really changing the game, you guys. With more than 35 bouldering guidebooks right there, including Bishop, Red Rock, Joes, Squamish, and Leavenworth, where I spent some time this spring, you get offline maps with pins for every problem, beautiful photos and descriptions, and over 300,000 community uploaded beta videos. I just love how easy this thing is to use, y'all. No more misinformation like scraping mountain project in YouTube and trying to pull together where you're gonna climb and get beta videos when you're getting shut down. And you don't have to buy a $40 guidebook for every area that you visit. It is all right there and it keeps track of my training and my sends. You can download Kaya for free just to check it out. And if you like it and you upgrade to the pro version, use the link in the show notes here and Kaya will send a bit of that love this way in support of these zero cost episodes here at the Struggle Climbing Show. It's a win-win. Hit that link in your phone to try Kaya for free and start logging your training and your sends. Get out there. This episode is also sponsored by Friction Labs Chalk, and man, am I glad that it is. I was out at the undertow wall at the Red a few days ago, and it was 85 degrees and 90% humidity. Classic kind of late August, early September weather out there, and the rock was manky. But my secret on those sweaty summer goes... Secret Stuff Liquid Chalk by Friction Labs. I'm going to hit a base layer of that and then when I'm on route, I'll dip into the Gorilla Grip and that definitely keeps my hands on the wall better than any other chalk brand I have ever used. And why is that? Well, Friction Labs is free of fillers, rosin, and drying agents which means your skin stays in great shape, go after go, and I definitely chalk up less often when I'm using that combo, which means I can make more moves and sometimes that's the difference between clipping chains or topping out on a long boulder problem or not. In my case, a few days ago, I wasn't even close. I was like four hanging this 12A, but I still was able to make more moves before dogging at that next draw. I also really appreciate that Friction Labs packaging is now 100% recyclable. They're putting a lot of work into that because they're dedicated to doing the right thing for climbers as well as the places that we climb. It's just truly the best chalk out there, and you can try it risk-free to see for yourself that is how psyched they are to help you level up. Just enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout to get 20% off your first order, chalk up less, and climb more with our friends over at Friction Labs. All right, let's get our digits warmed up for a max strength dose of finger training 2.0 with Dr. Tyler Nelson.
0: Seems like you have the most sophisticated setup for the podcasting yet.
1: I mean, it's a microphone in a utility closet with some blankets.
0: Well, most people you I'm thinking more of the software. Most people just use Zoom or something else where yours seems a little nicer than that.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good program. Yeah. It's like it records lossless audio and video. So you don't get that like robot voice thing, you know, that you can sometimes hear on other podcasts. So yeah, kind of a pro-operation, kind of a junk show over here in the uh, podcast slash utility closet. But I'm psyched, man. The, uh, the content today will certainly not be junk. I'm looking at your outline here. This is dense. You came prepared. Always appreciate that. We're looking at like a four-hour conversation here.
0: I really wanted to just like lay out kind of the ideas behind, I think, the average climber trying to strength train their fingers. They're just confused you know, there's just like so many, there's so much discussion out there about how to train your fingers. And there's novel ideas that people come up with myself, including in some of those. And really just like people are just like not sure which one to use. And so I think a lot of the recommendations from coaches and the understanding of the athletes is they just don't have an understanding of what each individual one's actually doing from like the cellular level from the physiology. So that's really kind of a breakdown, but in my mind, it's not as complicated as it probably looks on paper, but I think for for most people that are listening, they might find it complicated. <laughs> but we're gonna try and well, make it really easy.
1: Yeah, I mean, at least what I what I noticed, and and for for listeners, Tyler sent a couple page, you know, very dense word document here covering everything you could ever imagine about strengthening fingers or training fingers, rather, because it's it's not just about strengthening, I guess. Um, but I, I think. In this discussion, I guess what the hope is, is to demystify some of these things. We all want the one quick trick and the one crazy thing that's going to help me, you know, take it to the next level. I think that's that's human kind of behavior to want to do that. And, and rock climbers are, are an ilk that can get obsessed with training and new protocols and what's the, you know, the, the hottest new thing. So hopefully you can slice through the, the signal from the noise in some of this but also you're, you're going to, it looks like, divide this up into different applications or, or at least different ways that we might be able to get to the same conclusion. So is there an overarching theme here that we're going to dive into? Is there anything that kind of the, the umbrella before we start to get very specific into some of these pillars that, that you've laid out?
0: Yeah, probably the easiest way to think about it, I would say it, if you get the loads correct... It does not matter how you strength train your fingers. And so I say get the loads correct is if I'm isolating my fingers or I'm pulling on something or hanging on a fingerboard, the loads that I would use are not the same because those are two different types of muscle contractions and there's more or less additional passive tension in those. And so if you understand really what you're trying to get out of it, both of them can work really well but people are just confused by the difference between the loads and they just stick with one and they're too rigid and like stubborn to like use a different one just because, you know, they feel like there's just a, a an optimal way to do it, which there definitely is not. Right. Okay. So, we're talking
1: about is it is it fair for me to say in this conversation we're talking a lot about non-specific climbing finger training or will you also be including climbing As part of the discussion and overall finger training, sometimes when people think of finger training, they're thinking about I'm on a hangboard or I'm picking things off the ground with a block or I'm doing finger curls or any number of other things. And that's kind of like training, whereas then climbing, which, of course, climbing is training, but maybe is mentally kind of compartmentalized into a different thing. So how are you looking at finger strength protocols in terms of how we're actually going to be working our fingers?
0: So if you were just to stop climbing and only finger strength train your fingers off the wall, the ability to transfer that to rock climbing would be zero, pretty much. Waste of your time. Hmm. So And at the top of the document, which is probably the part that's confusing, I broke down the idea that hanging on a fingerboard or lifting something off the ground or squeezing something None of those are that specific to rock climbing because the exercises that we do for strength training are not specific. That's just like a statement that needs to be stopped being replicated over and over. People will say this exercise is more specific to rock climbing because it looks more like rock climbing. That is a bad explanation for using an exercise because it's not the sport. And so ultimately, like one of the adaptations, the most important adaptation for finger transfer is coordination and so at the top of the document i use the 10 second max hang as the first one because that was the first protocol that came out and then the minimal edge protocol but the minimal edge protocol i would say all of that should be done on a climbing wall not on a fingerboard Mm. because if i'm if i'm using an application where i'm trying to grab onto smaller edges like i'm going to get a better transfer to my sport if i just do it on the wall so a long-winded way of saying you have to use the climbing wall more than your off-the-wall strength training, or it will not transfer at all. Is there a season for less wall climbing and
1: more off-the-wall finger strength training using a a tin deck or a max weighted hangs and that kind of thing versus where you should spend more time and less? Or are you saying generally slash conclusively that regardless of where we're at, at any given time, we should be spending more time in the act of climbing than we are not in the act of climbing.
0: I'm totally okay with the idea and think it's a good idea for athletes to take time away from like climbing at their limit for their sport just because the, the high dynamic loads to the fingers on small holds with a lot of grabbing and twisting and power output has implications for increasing injury risk to the joints of the fingers. And Extending a performance phase and expecting to send it your limit year round is not sustainable. So in that context, sure, an off season month of strength training and fingerboarding with less climbing, totally fine. But ultimately you can still you could still do some on-the-wall coordination training, which is less risky than normal performance climbing at that same time too. And that's what I'll do a lot and typically have my clients, you know, because you can still maintain stiffness in the connective tissues but you have to change the way you're loading your fingers but i think in general yes that would be okay to do and give people good gains cuz that'll bring some hypertrophy to the to the muscles
1: yeah in fact i was just talking with tom Randall about kind of arc training and and the building capillaries and uh, some hypertrophy as as you know submaximal part of a really important part of the the base phase i'm assuming that's not what we're focusing on as much here, although it does look like we're going to get down and, and even get into things like uh, no hangs and some real submaximal type stuff um, you've got on your list here. And I'll, I'll let you guide us through it. But um, it may be helpful for, for me, uh, for purposes of this context for this conversation, for you to define strength. With regard to, we're talking about finger strength training protocols. And you put strength in quotes there, which I think even you were making a note there of like, well, this maybe is going beyond what would typically be considered strength or maybe just highlighting the fact that we should set the stage for the listener on what finger strength actually means, if nothing else, for purposes of your exploration here.
0: Yeah, so, well, I think what people want to understand is like the adaptations to a strength training program, there's you know six that are I've kind of itemized there. Arguably, there's more if you want to get into the real minutiae. But when it comes down to the consequences, like what happens to the body, to the fingers, to the muscles as a consequence of strength training, right? And the very first one on that list is coordination. So if you were to do a general strength training new exercise, let's say a deadlift or a fingerboard, and you're not familiar with it, the initial four to six weeks of increases in load are going to be coordination. They're not going to be muscular strength increases. You're not getting more recruitment. So the first one is I have to get coordinated at the skill that I'm doing before I can actually gain some recruitment, which is number two. And so number two is like getting more muscles and specifically the type two motor units, the fast twitch muscle fibers, getting them involved requires me to get coordinated then i can start gaining more access to more muscle fibers that's really what we care about for finger strength training as a climber i want to have more muscles connected to my brain so i can grab onto a hold and i can access more so i can create more force right the other ones are antagonist coactivation which happens with the sport we don't really need to train that a ton off the wall in my opinion and then hypertrophy lateral force those are just consequences of a lot of climbing in general and i would mentioned on that protocol on that document that most finger training protocols, like a 10-second hang, a repeater hang, those are hypertrophy protocols. Those are not maximum strength training protocols. And that's the difference. The last adaptation is like tendon stiffness. So we absolutely want to get tendon stiffness from strength training protocols because that's protective for the pulleys and the tendons and the joints of the fingers. And, And that dovetails well
1: into this next section there where you pose the question to yourself, which is what are we trying to get out of our finger training program? What are the, the, the goals uh, that we're going for? And m- most people might not necessarily need to understand um, every nuance of it. They just might say, I just want to get better at rock climbing, but probably important for you to explain what does getting better at rock climbing mean? And, and it also might in- it entail being a healthier climber as well.
0: Yeah, I think one of the like maybe think about like just a someone that starts climbing. Like for my presentation last week, I actually used Chat and typed in climbing technique. And climbing technique, it brought up this list of things. It was like lower extremity footwork. It talked about body position, it talked about center mass. It did not mention like how you use your hands though, because we learn as climbers how to how to put less stress on the fingers. So when you learn to climb, You learn to conserve energy so you can climb more and climb further, right? But at some point, an athlete has to develop that stiffness and that strength in their hands. And so I make the argument to a lot of people that fingerboarding is probably the best way to do that for someone that's new to climbing. But for someone that has a big climbing history, they're already very coordinated at hanging on holds and they're already pretty strong. Continuing to use a fingerboard in that context makes very little sense to me because, they have to load so heavy because they're so strong that it's kind of risky on the joints. And when I talk to, you know, I mostly spend my time talking to athletes with finger injuries, either in person or by Zoom. And I talk to way too many people that are just doing the same 10 second hang protocol on a 20 mil edge and their their middle joints are sore in their fingers, right? And obviously climbing volume is probably the biggest problem, but there's no way that that doesn't incorporate or doesn't contribute to their fingers being sore and injured all the damn time, right? Well, so- I, ju- I
1: just messaged you on this personally myself after coming off of a couple months of a strength training block where I was doing a lot of work on the 20 mil, you know, lattice rung, some ANCAP stuff at 70 to 80%. And I was also doing some stuff on the deck and some stuff on the moon board, but very similar, not to take us down a tangent here, but... I had never experienced this, but those those knuckles were getting a little swollen and getting a little tender, especially in, in a ha- whenever I would engage a half crimp. If I was open hand, it, it, I didn't feel it at all. But when I was getting into that half crimp, which is not a grip that I typically even climb with, to be perfectly honest, at the Red River Gorge because I'm doing a lot of like drag and open. But I was training heavy in that, and I just started experiencing that myself. If that's relevant to this conversation or not, but it's just the the, the timing is is curious as you mentioned that.
0: I think that's always relevant, and I always look at it from the clinical connective tissue standpoint because that's kind of my expertise. But but when it comes to like one of the tenets of strength training is strength training should be more intense than normal climbing, and strength training should be less risky, should be safer. And so if I'm an athlete that's doing a lot of my sport, and I'm also doing a lot of strength training, but the strength training that I'm doing doesn't evenly load my fingers and I'm getting mostly middle finger stress because the fingers aren't the same length, like I would say that's probably not worth the risk for most climbers because doing that and having an injury is obviously going to limit your performance, but also it's not a very even distribution to the fingers. So I also see a lot of index and pinky finger pulley ruptures because when do you load your pinky finger pulley? Only when you're like trying really hard on a crimp. but with our normal training routine, we don't really do that. So that's another one of the strength training I I think kind of arguments for it is it should be safe and it should be heavy and it should be protective but doing really long hangs on a fixed edge I think just doesn't make sense for a lot of different reasons.
1: Yeah, okay, good. Well, we'll let's we'll we'll peel that back in a bit as we get into exploring some specific protocols as as you're going to be looking at whether it's hanging or lifting or overcoming isometrics a lot, a lot of nerdy stuff for us to to dive into, but let's continue down this kind of overview path here with regard to what we are getting out of our our training. And injury reduction is one of the, the main buckets on there. And of course, increased performance as well. So what's important for us to understand, aside from training should be safer than climbing and should be protective or harder than climbing? What else is important for us as we're looking at finger strength training?
0: I would say the adaptations that we're looking for that are the most important are going to be recruitment to the fast twitch muscle fibers. So the biggest ones, we want to engage those, you know, regularly to make sure that we can utilize them on the wall. And the second thing is creating more stiffness in the connective tissues of the fingers. So as far as we know, from like exercise in the exercise science world, heavy loads that are done with more intentional speed, which is like a higher rate of force, are the loads that increase connective tissue stiffness the most. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a rock climber and I'm trying to grab onto a hold and latch it quickly, having stiffer connective tissues makes sense because then my muscle force will transfer across the joint more efficiently and faster. So by getting stronger and using appropriate strength training methodology, I automatically make someone potentially more powerful But all I got to do is my sport at its normal speed, and that should happen faster and better if I'm using a protocol that stiffens those connective tissues. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it totally makes sense.
1: And so if we're talking about kind of the modalities in order to um, achieve that, you're saying for newer climbers, you may be able to get all of that on a hangboard, at least for a certain amount of time. But for those who have been training for a while... It's more efficient, or in fact, recommended to move beyond the hangboard. Or are there ways to use the hangboard even as a more advanced climber? I think we talked about when when building rate of force development, you can kind of hover your fingers above a hangboard and cut your feet and catch yourself. Maybe if you don't have access to rock climbing right nearby, but but maybe that's just a, a little bit of a a patch rather than the better thing to be doing. Could be any number of other things. So with regard to Hangboard utilization versus other ways to build that stiffness to help with the rate of force. What are your best tools or, or are we about to get into that? I might be getting ahead of ourselves here.
0: No, I think that's fine segue. Maybe we'll say that think about how how slow a 10 second hang is. Mm-hmm. Like a 10 second max hang, I add load to my body. I limit how much load I put on my body based on how long I can hang on for 10 seconds, right? The time frame. The time frame, as I mentioned on that document, says the idea came up from some demand. So the creator of that protocol has a demand. She spends time on a hold for 10 seconds. So the idea was to overload a hold for 10 seconds and build more tolerance there. That's totally appropriate. That's a capacity building protocol, though. That protocol might be heavy-ish, but there's no way it's a maximum load. So the name is kind of confusing. But doing mm-hmm. it for 10 seconds is incredibly slow. That is not going to increase stiffness to the connective tissues. So what people, don't, what people should hear is that doesn't mean that that's a bad protocol. But for strength training, it doesn't really satisfy what we're looking to get out of a strength training protocol, which is recruitment only for a short time to the really big muscle fibers and some stiffness to the connective tissues. What's so, a short time? A couple seconds. Like, oh, wow. when, you, when, you me- when you measure people's, like, how long does it take to do, like, a really heavy strength training movement? Like, three seconds is probably plenty long. Like, and if you look at, like, world record holders for, like, deadlifting or the squats a little slower because they have to lower. But the actual concentric portion of a one rep max is typically around two and a half to three seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, and even though those athletes are lifting a really heavy load, they're not moving slow on purpose. They're still trying to move fast because that... It engages the large motor units better because they're naturally fast, hence the name. But the velocity is very slow just because the load is heavy. But they're trying to move it fast. And so with a fingerboarding protocol, you could do this on a fingerboard. And I would clarify that we don't want to, like, load, like, jump on the fingerboard. You want to get set up with maybe a little bit of tension if you're using a fingerboard. But then you want to lift your feet up faster, not just like this slow lift and then hang for a long time. That's a different intention with the exercise. If I was going to use a fingerboard, I could do it with two arms. But for me, like I can hang with one arm on a 20 mil edge with, I think I did for this presentation, a video with 20 pounds in my other hand. Mm -hmm. Right. So me with both hands on a fingerboard, like, is it really worth or necessary to do that much heavy loading on my fingers when I could just do it with one arm or I could just use another method? Right, So then it becomes like, is it worth the risk? Because it's definitely not a symmetric load to my fingers. Every individual is going to be different. That's the hard part. You can't just like blanket statement, everyone does the same thing and they're going to get the same results. That just doesn't work very well.
1: Yeah. Well, and I, you you came up with a video quite recently that that showed it was, was it slow hang, no hang, bro hang or something like that. There was a, some kind of catchy title around it, but essentially comparing how different the loads would be depending on what method one would use to do this kind of finger strength. And, and maybe now's the time to start parsing into that a little bit, but just to kind of at least close the loop for part of this conversation on the timing, when you're talking about a max hang, like a max strength hang being a few seconds, is that also the same time that would apply to an overcoming isometric, that would apply to lifting something off of the ground versus pulling down with one hand, like you're saying, is the load may be different, but is, is the time something that we can keep in our mind where we're saying, hey, if we're trying to go max, it should just be a few seconds?
0: For sure. And there's, there's evidence not in the climbing world, but in the general exercise science world where longer duration isometrics are not optimal for increasing force production and increasing recruitment and increasing tendon stiffness. It's been suggested that a longer duration isometric be broken up with short rests between efforts and you're going to get a more repeat signal. So if we think about in the context of like normal strength training, we do, you know, you wouldn't do five sets of 10 to get stronger. Like people kind of know that now. Like if you were a beginner, you might get stronger like that. But most athletes that are strong, they're not going to get stronger like that because reps four through 10 the last six reps aren't going to be very hard they're going to be fatiguing but the weight's going to be way lower so you're going to build more fatigue resistance there right but instead doing 10 by 3 it's going to make my workout longer but i can do more intensity but i'm doing more first reps so like got it why do we train the fingers differently it doesn't make sense we're kind of very stubborn in our methods but everyone else in the world of strength conditioning would say, yes, this makes sense for strength training. But as climbers, we're still kind of resistant to that for some reason. But there's no real difference there. We just use the fingers instead of the other body parts more.
1: Yeah. It, well, it's it's so interesting because I feel like while this should have been super obvious to me, like it took me a long time to have the realization that when we're talking about strong fingers, we're really talking about forearms, right? I mean, like that's where the muscles of our fingers are. There, there's tendons in the fingers, right? And you're talking about tendon stiffness. Sorry if I'm taking us down a rabbit hole here, but the shorthand that we use is, oh, I need stronger fingers on that project. I need stronger this. I need stronger that. Like the the, the muscles themselves
0: do not reside in the fingers, right? For the most part, there are muscles in the hand. There's some muscles between the bones in the hand that are important for like, like grasping things if our hand was like grabbing like a ball. Okay. And there's also some lumbricals in the hand which attach to the tendons, but... By and large, the majority of the force production happens in the forearm, for sure. That's where the finger flexor muscle bellies live. But there's also like thumb muscles and pinky side muscles, too. So there is some meat there. But the majority of the things we're flexing with live in the forearm. Okay. So we're trying to build
1: tendon stiffness, which are in the fingers, and then trying to build recruitment and overall strength the majority of which is gonna be residing down in the forearm, like you said, it's still associated with the fingers because that's where it's all connected. And we're talking a few seconds, anything beyond that, just this, this is a different interview that we'll do, but essentially we'll be, we'll be building muscular endurance. Is that right? If, if we are to take your example, doing 10 seconds, you know, three sets of 10 seconds rather than 10 sets of three seconds, the former, the three sets of 10 seconds, is not
0: strength, it would be endurance? It would be more of a capacity protocol, for sure. But if you think about, like, if I did three sets of 10 with a normal strength training routine, that's 10 reps. Each rep's probably three seconds. That's probably 30 seconds of time under tension. But climbers will do, like, literally three or five sets of 10, which is not only not that much volume, but it's, like, a volume at an intensity that's submaximal that's probably just, like, building hypertrophy in the muscles that are already strong anyways, because the type of muscle contraction that we use there, we we don't maximize the actual muscle activity. We have to go really, really heavy to actually get full recruitment with that kind of muscle contraction. So
1: is it a common mistake that you see in climbers that they're just hanging for too long?
0: That just doesn't make sense. Doing a 10 second effort to increase my finger strength just does not make sense. That's a a misuse of the term strength and understand the adaptations because we just try and make it look like a climb, which is fine from like a fatigue resistance standpoint, but that is, that is not the same thing as strength training.
1: Okay. I love it. We're starting to to chisel our way into some more specificity here, which is great. Let's say we've all now come to the point here, listening to this episode, that we're now blowing up some habits that maybe some of us have had for many, many years of trying to build strength with a 10 second hang or a seven second hang. And we're saying, okay, three seconds, two seconds, whatever, right? Basically try as hard as you freaking can and then stop trying and take a little break and then try again. So we're, we're aligned on the time. Now let's talk about um, what we're waiting and and how we're engaging that weight or that resistance.
0: So I think the, maybe the video that you described already is like a good one to think about. And I I have these videos of myself, not because like I joke with my wife. I'm like, it's not like these thirst trap videos. It's hot where I am in this warehouse space. And it's just easier to do it on myself because I can like just do it between clients. Right. And so it's like, it's always videos of me doing it, which is kind of annoying, but. No, you look, hey, hey hey
1: no, you look great. We like the videos. You got some great ink on your forearms. You got good posture. There's there's a, there's a good backdrop. It's it's all good. Um, your your videos are fantastic. But I but I hear you. It's uh it's not a vanity project. You're just trying to uh, display what are somewhat uh, esoteric concepts, if just kind of written about, and and make a lot of sense if you can just see it. So your your videos are great. We'll link to them.
0: So in terms, of, in terms of like, if I was sitting and I was pulling down vertically on a scale on the tin deck on a 20-mil edge, and I had something blocking my hips, pulling down as hard as I can, my numbers when I tested, I didn't actually show the video on that day, but my numbers were like 170 pounds. Okay.
1: And so just so I understand, you've got one arm above your head, your knees are are, are locked, so you're essentially pulling down. And are you engaging your shoulders, your bicep, everything? You're not trying to isolate just your your finger flexors, you're, you're pulling down with with the whole body, everything you got. I got it.
0: Yeah. So that's more representative of the loads that if I'm sticking with a half cramp, that's more representative of the loads that would be used to calculate my hangboard maximum. Right. And so then I would do that on both sides. It's about even about 170. Right. Okay. Conversely now. So that's my maximum. So whatever one, whatever that is times two. Right. Then if I was standing on top of a platform and my knees were bent slightly and I was still using a half cramp, pushing into it, my numbers should be pretty similar. Because even though now I'm pushing with my legs, I'm still limited by the eccentric style muscle contraction of my finger flexors. And those numbers were also around 170 per hand.
1: Okay. So that's, that's again, just to, to paint the picture here, that's where the the load is anchored to the floor. In this case, you're talking about standing on a platform and you've got a tin deck there because it's measuring the, the pounds of force and you are not just engaging your finger flexors, doing like an overcoming isometric, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, but you are using your legs. You're basically trying to rip that thing out of the
0: floor. Yep, and try and stick with a half crimp as much as I can, but it's got gonna it. slowly open.
1: So right. if
0: we like do a zoomed in view of the first test pulling down, you would watch the middle two joints slowly be opening. Mm -hmm. The same thing from the floor, my joints are slowly opening, but it's still limited by how much I can yield or prevent the joint from opening, and it was about 170 pounds, same weight. And that would be the
1: same as if you had 340 pounds hanging from a harness in two hands on on a hangboard.
0: So I would have to take my body weight. You'd have to subtract your body weight. Right, right, right.
1: But three, 340 total. If you're 170 yeah. and 170, so it's 340. So whatever your body weight minus 340 is, you'd strap. So I would do 180 pounds on top of my body weight. Got it. With two hands. And again, hands. the hands would be slowly opening.
0: Slowly opening. And I would just do that for like a couple seconds. And you call that? It's called a yielding isometric.
1: Oh, a yielding isometric. Okay, great. So, so, the terminology so, I think matters here because there's a lot of papers out there, and, and and you talk about it. So yielding isometric is essentially you are trying to keep your fingers from opening. You're trying to keep the half
0: crimp. Yeah. So like a like the donut lock off. Let's let's plug the donut lock off. Always the donut lock off is like a yielding isometric for one arm. Or you know, so you're holding onto the bar with one arm at 90 degrees, eating a donut. You're doing a yielding style isometric on the arm. And Right.
1: You're slowly, as you're eating your donut, you're slowly losing the ability to keep that 90-degree lock off and ultimately your feet touch the ground. Okay. Yeah. So that's the same thing for the fingers, whether you are pulling down or whether you are trying to rip that thing off the floor using your legs and all of that. And so, those were so, so
0: Some people might get a difference there, though. So like my upper body is pretty strong just because I have good leverage. But for people that have longer arms, the pulling down might be a little bit less force than the lifting from the ground. And that's really because lifting from the ground it's just a position difference in my shoulder. So because I'm not pulling as much with my shoulder, if I have longer limbs, I might be able to generate a little bit more force because I'm pushing with my
1: legs. And since we're talking about finger strength here and not leg strength or shoulder strength, I'm sure we'll get to the point here where we're talking about needing to isolate some of those factors out. But let's continue to use yourself as the example here. They were about the same, whether you were pulling down or whether you were pulling up. What else did you test?
0: So then I just loaded 170 pounds on a loading pin. And then I used the tension block and I just lifted 170 pounds off the ground. And you could do that. You could do that I could lift. Do that. Yep. And I would do that for stand up, set it down, couple seconds, stand up, set it down, couple seconds. I could probably do three reps of that. And then the fourth rep, I would probably have, I'd probably be, my fingers would be obviously opening it up sooner and probably would fail that repetition. Okay. So you peg that at about the same effort as the others then? So that one, I would choose the weight that I actually tested because I don't have to account for my body weight, where the fingerboard protocol, and then I went to a 20 mil edge on the tension block, which was dangling, which is less of a good tool than if it was fixed on a fingerboard, but they Mm. might stole my fingerboards for the Seco Comp in, in Chicago. So I don't have those. So I just hooked the block above me. But then I did a one arm hang on a 20 mil edge with 10 pounds, which is 170 pounds to really show that like those numbers show that I should be able to do those loads. But for me, they're pretty much the same thing. So it doesn't really matter which one I use. It's more a function of like the actual practicality of doing it. But for me, hanging with my body weight with 180 pounds is just a gigantic pain in the ass. I would just never do that. Just not worth it. It's too much of a hassle to set it up. It's not necessary. And so I could use either methodology and get stronger. But if you can go to one arm, it's just really easy to hang with one arm. And then did you
1: also test the locking out all of your muscles and just curling into like the block using the tin deck? And where does that fall with regard to strength building?
0: Yes. So with that video, I tested the isolated finger strength. And then in a video, maybe a day or two before that or post one or two before that, I showed and demonstrated that I could do that standing and curling up. I could also do that sitting and pulling down. I could also do that blocking my elbow against a chair or wall, pulling horizontally. It does not matter as long as I know what I'm trying to get out of it. And as long as I'm not trying to cheat the test, you know, like, it doesn't really matter the position that you use, but the force was 50 pounds less. I lost you.
1: You there? Oh, there you. Yep. Are. Sorry, a little little hiccup in the in the system there. I think it was saving. So we'll get to application in a second here, but I think this is really important to to understand the different methods that that you've explored on those where you are isolating just the finger flexors and you're not engaging your shoulder, you're not engaging your legs, you're not you know trying to rip that thing off the the floor. I'm assuming that number was lower than what you were getting when you were, so, so how much lower and, and does it matter?
0: It, it matters a lot and it was 50 pounds lower, so it was 120 pounds.
1: Okay, and why does it
0: matter a lot? Because if I was going to eliminate like my upper body pull strength and I was going to try and isolate more muscle fibers, that's a methodology that takes away a lot of the extra stretch to the connective tissue around and at the ends of all my muscle fibers. So the easiest way to describe this is with doing other types of movements because climbing movements and the finger things is confusing. But if athletes think about doing their pull-up one rep maximum, the pulling up part is the hard part. The lowering back down is not that hard. And so when I do a negative or when I do an eccentric muscle contraction, every individual fiber is stronger because there's a piece of connective tissue at the end of the muscle fiber that gets stretched with the muscle fiber. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that when I do a negative movement that I'm getting more recruitment at all. It just means that my muscles are more efficient with that movement. And
1: that's that's the yielding isometric that you're talking about. The yielding Uh,
0: isometric will always be stronger than the overcoming isometric.
1: All right, y'all, just a quick minute here to shout out a sponsor and thank them for bringing this episode to you at zero cost. And I'm telling you, if all this talk of finger training and tendon loading has got you thinking about how to keep your fingers healthy, well, I think you should be checking out Supercharged Collagen by Fizzy Vantage. Oh my gosh, I love this stuff. This is the finger food that you've been looking for. I'll usually shake a scoop into my pre-workout before hitting the moon board or the hangboard, or sometimes I'll just mix it into my morning tea on a recovery day and then do some light like arc lab or no hangs, and the science shows that that is going to help my tendons get stronger and recover faster so that I can keep training harder. I've been using it for years now, and my fingers have never felt better, you guys. I cannot recommend it enough. Now, I'm just a weekend warrior, but when I see pros like Alex Magos, Daniel Woods, Paige Clausen, Jonathan Segrist, and like 40 or 50 other top names in climbing using Fizzy Vantage every single day, well, I know that this stuff is the real deal, and I think you're going to love it. Hit that link in your podcast notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order at FizzyVantage.com. Give it a shot. I think you're going to feel the difference. All right, let's get back to this conversation with Tyler. Okay, so when you're talking about, in your case, th- the difference here was 50 pounds, right? You could, on a yielding isometric, whether you were trying to rip that thing off the ceiling or rip it off of the ground or pick up 170 pounds on, on the pin, your, your fingers are slowly opening. You could do 170, but when you took every other muscle away in your body to the best of your ability and just, just isolated your fingers, you were curling into an edge or curling into a block. So it wasn't yielding, right? It was overcoming because you're trying to close your hand. And in that scenario, it was 120 pounds, right? 50 pounds lighter than the 170. But you know that that load was going 100% to your finger flexors. To the
0: muscles themselves. And so remember, I could still pick something up off the ground with 170 pounds, but that's because I load the connective tissues as well. And so when I'm doing an, a concentric movement or an overcoming style isometric which is like a concentric muscle contraction, I don't get that extra stretch to the muscle fibers. And so if we take it like a step further, when we look at the research on eccentric loading, it's fixed on the load. So this is the most important part of like why I've like gone down this rabbit hole for the last year of my life is really as soon as I take that load away, my muscles Do not create that response. This is a key point. The really heavy load is like load dependent. So as soon as I don't have that load, I shouldn't really expect my muscles to respond like that. So the question then is like, why are we still doing that? Like, why would I hang with one arm with 10 pounds on my body? Because I went to Squamish recently and there was B7s that like I couldn't climb. I couldn't send some of these movements, not because my fingers weren't strong, just because it was technical in other ways, right? Right, but let me dive into this for a second because I think there's,
1: for me at least, and and probably for others, there could be some uh, dissonance or some confusion around the statement when you take the load away you, you no longer can handle that load. Or, you know, you may have to rephrase it, but aside from going and not being able to send a technical V7, which I get because there's muscle memory and there's learned movement, and there's technique and there's all sorts of things. But if we're just, just talking, trying to isolate it in, in a lab here for a second, why wouldn't me hanging heavy loads translate to the wall?
0: Because as soon as you remove that load, you don't get the ability to stretch as much of the connective tissue at the end of every muscle fiber because, mm-hmm. you, because it only responds when you're using that really heavy load and you're getting that stretch to the muscle. Got it. So when you're climbing, you're left with your recruitment levels, how much active tension you can generate. And with that active tension, there is some stretch to the muscle. And we do get some stretch to the muscle when we're climbing all the time. That's why all climbers have big forearms. Like I talked about this in Squamish recently, like how many of you don't have big forearms? A couple of people raised their hand because they were alpine climbers, but like most people that are rock climbing, they all have big forearms compared to the general population. So that is a consequence of grabbing onto holds and hanging on for a long time, getting a slow stretch and getting some muscular hypertrophy, right? But there's a limit to how much of that is going to additionally add more recruitment to the finger flexors, right? And so you are going to get some passive tension always with climbing, but what we rely on more is how many muscle fibers we can get engaged and the passive tension that accompanies that. But if I'm only using a fingerboarding protocol and I'm not going really, really heavy all the time because it's kind of scary and maybe sore on the joints, I'm probably not helping myself that much more.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's an incredibly critical point that that we're trying to highlight here and, and hopefully that people are – is resonating with people. That there's essentially a, a better way to get stronger forearms or stronger finger flexors than to hang super heavy weights on a hangboard. To put kind of maybe one final nail in that coffin if we could, are the super heavy weights on a hangboard helpful for – tendon stiffness, or will the overcoming isometric serve
0: that purpose just as well? Uh, I typically have people do the overcoming isometrics with a higher rate to focus more on tendon stiffness, but I do am, am okay with using lifts from the floor as well that are heavy, you know, with a little bit more rate as well. And you can do that on the fingerboard as well. So if I, and this does not mean that I never use these tools. It just means that If I use them, I use them in a more appropriate way than just like doing slow continuous hangs because there's just not a lot of support that in any other context or any other sport, people are doing that for strength training. Just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And to like, and this is like a very like not intentionally counter culture theory ultimately, but like I have a database of like 100 athletes in all grade ranges testing both from the floor and overhead and their estimated loads are about 30 to 50 percent difference. Hmm. nobody that I know even the strongest athletes cannot produce the same amount of force in their finger flexors as it would predict with a fingerboard. It's just not possible right and there's another video on my account where I do like I've never done monos in my life like I can hang on monos pretty easily but there's no way that I can produce that much force with my middle finger. so how in the hell is that possible to hang at body weight and two monos? when I can't produce that much force with one finger. Right. right? And so understanding the difference there is important because there's risks that come with overloading the tissues and that usually happens to the joints. And at the conference last week, the number one joint related injury at the PIP joint is injuries to the joint capsule and getting an inflammatory response there with volar plate injuries. And there's there's no doubt in my mind that that isn't partly coming from how we train the fingers.
1: Fascinating, man. Okay, great. Well, let me take a deep breath. You can take a deep breath here. Have a, have a sip of your coffee because this is dense, but great and important. At this point now, I think we understand or are attempting to understand that we want to do short duration. So a few seconds and that super heavy hangs that are the yielding isometrics where your hand is slowly opening um, is not going to transfer to the wall. Uh, like the way we might think that it is. And instead, um, it may be as or it sounds like perhaps more beneficial to focus on isolating with an overcoming isometric. So are you using the lift heavy from the ground or the pull down as hard as you can using your whole body as part of any part of your routine? Or are you instead just focusing on the overcoming isometric where you're essentially actively trying to to curl your fingers closed against maybe it's a tin deck in, in your case where you can see how many pounds of force you're putting forward or for others maybe it's just a, you know, a tension bar or, or you know, something that they're just kind of that they're standing on a on a board, but they're not getting the the actual readout. Are you implementing both of those or are you only doing the overcoming?
0: No, no, no. I would definitely do both for most athletes. And for myself, I think it's important to do the minimal effective dosage of finger training, right? And so in my bag, in my climbing bag, and I, like, showed a bunch of athletes this when we were climbing, Is like I have a sling, I have two carabiners, I have the tin deck, and then I have this new Metacarp edge that is an unlevel edge, or I have my tension unlevel edge. So, like, I warm my fingers up. I start with just doing overcoming isometrics. Just do, like, you know— three to five sets of three to five reps at slow increase in load just as I'm warming up. So I'll stand vertically, hook it under a tree branch. I don't like hooking it under my foot because it just doesn't feel as good. So I'll hook it under a big rock or under a tree branch and I'll just stand and curl my fingers and watch the load and just warm it. And then I'll do other things obviously, but that's like the finger portion.
1: Still short, a few seconds.
0: I just just pull the ramp in and see the number come up and then let go, pull and let go. Pull and let go. And so, and again, even though I'm, I don't know if you should do the video for your podcast, but I'm not actually curling like this. It's like pulling and I'm not really curling my fingers under load because that's another thing that actually I don't think is a great idea is loading on a really heavy edge and physically like curling the fingers. That's incredibly stressful on the pulleys. I do not suggest that. So I'm not doing that just to be clear. But I just increase the perceived effort and watch the number go up over a couple sets. And then at the end of that, I'll include my legs and I'll just make the number spike really high. So I get some passive tension as well. And then I'll start intentionally getting grips and loading on the climbing wall.
1: Okay. So, I mean, that's a pretty short warm-up. And and you do have a great video on your Instagram feed that I think people can reference there. When you're not warming up for a climb, what's the minimal effective dose typically that you look at? when you're doing finger strength training? And then let's get into minimal edge and no hangs and some other things as well.
0: I would just finger strength train when people strength train. Like, you know, I'll do it before I climb and then I'll do it on a non-climbing strength training day just like in the middle of your lifting sets would be mm-hmm. fine. And pick whatever method you want, you know, you're gonna have different tools. We didn't, we haven't chatted yet about the unlevel edge, but I would also argue that for finger strength training, It does not matter the edge depth that you're using. What matters more is that you're isolating muscles in the forearm by using the fingers and you're getting a high number. That really is all we care about. So this new edge that I've been using, the Metacarp edge is like, I think it's 35 mil deep. It can be, but I'll like use at least 30 mils of it to make sure I cover my DIP joint. Mm-hmm. And I'll use kind of an open position here, which is more even to both finger flexors. And then I'll load in a half crimp. And then I'll just, like, use those two positions for there. And then I'll grab usually grab something that's more circular, like a, a tension ball with, like, the gripple, which I have screwed to it. You can s- grab that thing and lift with that thing, too, to get the hand muscles. And I would say that's all the finger training off the wall we need to do. Hmm. In terms of positions.
1: And so just so people understand what he's talking about with the unlevel edge, it's essentially because our, our fingers are different lengths. If we had a flat edge, um, our our fingers are not loading equally, right? So the unlevel edge, um, it's great if you've got it right there. And for those who are just listening and can't reference this video, it almost looks like uh, what you would see at an Olympic podium, like a first place, second place, third place. It's basically like steps.
0: Yeah, that's a good explanation of it.
1: Yeah, that your fingers sit on the steps, right? So your middle finger is on the highest step because it's the longest finger and your pinky is sitting flat.
0: So essentially each finger is on its own edge, but they're actually contributing to the load. And my numbers are like 15 pounds more just by including my pinky and my index finger more. And
1: that's because if it's a flat edge, you're getting most of the force just through your middle two.
0: Middle two fingers. And if you look at people doing the lifts, like it. It looks like even my hand on a 20 mil edge, you're like, oh, that doesn't look very good because you get like the twisting of the fingers and then the pinky's barely hanging on. It's like, I'm not really sure that that's like a very awesome idea for a lot of different reasons, but the position for sure, I don't, it just doesn't make sense that we would keep beating up the joints of the fingers for potential gains that might not even transfer to our sport. Right. Now, when we're rock climbing, obviously, you're going to be grabbing uneven holds and you're
1: going to be grabbing some flat edges and any number of other things. But what you're saying for training purposes, the best thing we can do is just put in the most optimal, safest conditions in order to prepare ourselves to overload for when we get out on, on uneven flat or weird tweaky holds or pockets and these kinds of things. And so that that example that you just showed is it allows each finger to put out as close to 100 percent contribution to the lift as as possible so that when we go out and we grab some weird tweaky thing on the moon board or whatever, our our fingers have been equally trained rather than the middle two getting overtrained and the and the you know outside two getting undertrained. Is that a
0: fair? Sure. It's, a, it's an it's an attempt at distributing the load to more members of the team, right? The Pinky and the index. Because though that's only two of the adaptations. So off the wall. Like I mentioned in that document, we can we want to use off-the-wall stuff for recruitment gains and stiffness gains. And obviously, you'll get stiffness gains on the wall too. But then that's, a, that's only a couple of the adaptations, specific adaptations of strength training. The other one, the coordination one, we have to do on the climbing wall. Right. And so that kind of ties into where we would maybe go with the minimal edge training. Like hanging on a 10-mil edge, like I can do it with one hand, with one arm but there's no way I can produce that much force on my fingers on a 10 millimeter edge. And I sure as hell cannot spend a bunch of time climbing at 40 degrees on 10 mil edges, right? right? And so obviously it's way more complicated in terms of the positioning whatnot, but it really is a demonstration that that edge and that thing for me does not represent my usability of a 10 millimeter edge. So I make the argument that Spend more time using smaller edges on a climbing wall. It, re- it really is that simple. And that's a better transfer to our sport just because you incorporate all those other elements of your climbing.
1: Yeah, okay, good. I want to talk a little bit more about this. Let me put hopefully one cherry on top of, of kind of what we were talking about there with just the strength training, off the wall protocol. And that was the programming. And you said, hey, you know, put it in when you're strength training. Do it maybe before you go out and you do some some hard climbing. It could be on the sets or the moon board or when you're outside. And then maybe uh, if there's another day where you're doing some deadlift and bench press and this kind of thing, you could uh, work that in in between sets where you're doing just a few seconds, max effort or very close to with some break. But the break doesn't have to be long, I'm assuming, because the time under tension is only a few seconds. So you could probably rapid fire off a, a couple of those and then go do some bench press and then four or five minutes later, come back and do a few more of those. I'm thinking for the, of which I'm one, the kind of the type A, slightly OCD climbers out there that love to have protocols figured out, what you and and Colin on your team and Jesse, I, I think do a very good job of is, is trying to bring on a little bit more laissez-faire, like casualness to it. Like, hey, do it when you're feeling good. Do it, you know, in between some things, don't overthink it sometimes that's hard for people like me to actually like accept so i'm gonna ask you to try to give a little bit of a general idea on like a base training phase when i'm not trying to perform outside on rock but if i'm just like right now it's august and i'm just trying to get stronger what could that look like for for me a couple days a week a few days a week five days a week i mean it's it's such a low volume or like you know it seems like it's a low impact type thing. I, I maybe could do it all the time, but I'm assuming there's gonna be diminishing returns. So how often, generally speaking, could I be doing this?
0: I mean, you could probably do it three days a week with little like repercussion. I'd probably do three to five sets, three to five reps, maybe do a cycle, maybe three weeks of overcoming style isometrics, track your progression, just you know, session to session, week to week, use the force. The first set, the first rep, try and do a max test and use that as like the cutoff number, right? So if it's 120, you got to do pulls until you're below 110. So you kind of guide the length of your session based on that, right? That should slowly go up, but it'll go up slower than you expect because isolating muscle fibers is like <clears throat> definitely the more important way to gain recruitment. But it's going to take some more time because you got to get coordinated with that type of contraction a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then, after you like plateau, then switch to lifting something heavy off the ground. And what I've what we've had some of our athletes do, like they do one before the other, and they'll notice that the other is higher because of the first one, <clears throat> right? So, if you're activating muscle fibers before you do something that requires muscle fibers, you're going to get more muscle fibers activated. The number is going to go up. Mm-hmm. So, then you could do a short block of that too. But then, as you get closer to your season, you still have to. Get coordinated grabbing onto small and hard holds, whatever that looks like for you as an athlete, whatever. That's where we want to care about the demands analysis. So when it went from like a 20 mil max hang for 10 seconds to a minimal edge, the minimal edge made sense because the athlete that made that, Ava, climbs on really small edges and it's very technical, right? So great. Do that on a climbing wall. There's, I would make the argument that you can do that same thing if you have access to a climbing wall like a spray wall tension board, any of the boards that there are available, right? You can do that on the wall. And then you're going to get a better transfer. If you don't have access to a board like that, use a fingerboard. Because you can use a small edge on a fingerboard, but that's not a strength training response. That's a coordination response. And if I'm doing a lot of volume of that, that's going to be a capacity building thing. Mm-hmm. But that's my sport, right? So if I'm a sport, if I'm a rock climber, and I'm a sport rope climber, I'm sorry, and I need to do more of that, those things... I need to be spending more time doing that. But if I'm just doing short boulder problems, I only need to do a couple hand moves on really small edges. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does It does make sense. And, and it also makes sense if you have the availability to either do it out on a project on a rock or like on a tension board or a moon board or something like that. If you are using a hangboard that's got a 20 mil and a 10 mil edge, or if you've got Ava Lopez's board that's you know gives you a whole lot of options, are you suggesting that we try to find ways to move around on that edge to essentially kind of throw and latch that edge? Or is it still uh, running and overcoming isometric or a, or a yielding um, on that thinner edge in, in the manner that we were doing on the, on the bigger edge?
0: You could probably load it quicker, for sure, like you on doing on the max strength protocol. But then because of the position, it definitely gets a little bit more risky on the A4 pulley, you know, because mm-hmm. you're going to be full crimping most of those edges. So I would usually say the coordination drill or the coordination adaptation that I pair with the maximum strength stuff is usually slow and controlled still. You can grab onto things with some intent, but it's not jumping to a hold. You know, it's very much still controlled because I want to really focus on how my hand sets up. And that's where pockets come into play. So if people are climbing on pockets, they're climbing in wild iris or in lander, and they want to strength train for pockets, like, just climb on a wall with pockets. But, like, slow down and spend more time getting coordinated. But training two fingers you know, off the wall in a block is not going to necessarily transfer to the coordination of climbing on two fingers in pockets. Right. Right. So we could still train four fingers for strength because I'm going to get a bigger recruitment adaptation because it's still mostly one muscle belly, but I still need to get coordinated. But those are separate adaptations, right? So we want to get those on different tools.
1: Okay. We've talked about building strength max recruitment tendon stiffness we've talked about the the timing we've talked about methodologies of of doing that and it sounds like you're a fan of essentially working in a variety do one for a while until you stop seeing progress whether that's using a tin deck or you're lifting certain amounts of weight off the ground and now you can't add weight after a couple of weeks then maybe move on to something else at some point in time we're going to start climbing a lot more because we're getting into season we're going to start getting specific to our project what are we going to be doing in season with regard to this type of modality that we're talking about? And then maybe we can open it up and talk about some other things like Emile's no hangs and and these kinds of other protocols that have become popular for, for reasons that maybe a lot of climbers don't quite understand.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of why I shot the one video of the no, I think it was no hang, bro hang, ah oh, something hang. But ultimately, like... You could do the overcoming, what Emil calls as a no-hang, from the floor, and you would get the same exact response.
1: Just at like 40% or 50% or something? no
0: different. Yeah. All he's doing is standing – people stand on a scale and pull down and say, okay, 50% off my body weight, whatever that is. It does not matter. The science would suggest that that is not enough intensity or rate to actually increase stiffness to the connective tissues. So I would say – The reason that that protocol, and I don't know that they measured it all the time or they were just using a perceived effort, I would predict that he increases active tension. So he actually was just training to use more muscle mass because you can, like I mentioned, hanging on one finger monos, like I'm using a ton of passive tension, but the more passive tension I use, the less muscle engagement I actually get. Right. So if I was only to do eccentric pull-ups at body weight, I would actually use way less muscle fibers. That would not make me stronger, right? So he changed his loading scheme to where he's focusing more on getting muscles activated, which kind of deloaded the fatigue because we haven't really mentioned fatigue. But muscle stretching is more fatiguing than not muscle stretching when it comes to activity. And so he got more recovery and then retested and was like, oh, numbers are great. That's the real explanation for why that happened. If we're
1: just kind of unpacking the the no- hang a meal style because it's there's there's other you know variations out there, but essentially we're talking about maybe fifty percent of perceived effort or body weight to to your point, whether you have feet on the ground or you're doing it lifting something up off the ground at, at half the weight, that's not going to be to your point, engaging the tendon stiffness, but it's going to be, more akin to arc training where we're going to be building some hypertrophy that will then help us to recruit more fibers down the line, right? If I'm if I'm understanding correctly and there's a place for that, right? Or is there a, a better way to do what that's doing?
0: So, I would say the aerobic fitness stuff and the adaptations you would get there would not really transfer to maximum recruitment levels and maximum strength, but it could have benefits, you know, long-term for athletes just having like uh, a bit more uh, capacity for tolerating, you know, climbing related stress. But I would say for the most part, climbers will get that on the climbing wall. I don't know that there's a real big need to have that. I would also say if you're gonna do some sort of protocol where you're trying to isolate finger recruitment, using the unlevel something makes the most sense. Because, you know, in that position, you're not loading as much muscle as you could if you were loading more fingers more evenly. Mm -hmm. So, there's very little argument about that, like we should be doing that if we're trying to target muscular endurance, and actually I'm doing my presentation for the PCC on that topic this time around, is if we're trying to increase muscle endurance, we have to stress the muscle more intentionally.
1: Yeah. Well, that's. I think that's a, a good and important distinction to make. So let's talk about that for a second because I'm a sport climber and so muscle endurance does come into play quite often. I mean, top end strength is is helpful as well when I need to hit a boulder problem in the middle of the route or just have a bigger bucket to fill it with endurance ultimately. But for building muscle endurance, my understanding is that it's in this, I don't know, 50 to 70% range, but is more better. Is it more effective if it's 70% rather than 50% rather than 30%? At some point in time, my understanding was that you get into anaerobic capacity and that starts developing a different energy system or a different way we engage our fingers than if it's more aerobic, so easier or a lower load. But I'm not sure I'm understanding that properly.
0: So remember, the loads that you would use are different. The percentages are different if you were using a fingerboard or if you were doing an overcoming isometric with the Tendac. Sure. But if I'm doing an overcoming isometric with the Tendac, that's more muscle stress because I'm not using all the passive tension. So I would have to use a different maximum load and I would use a different percentage of that maximum because the load's different. And that would be a more intentional muscle stress because you're still going to be climbing if you're trying to build muscular endurance and your climbing is your sport. You absolutely should be climbing more than training. But if we're training for the sport, we're trying to build more muscular endurance in an isolated way, it doesn't really make sense to do it in an eccentric-like fashion because I'm not getting as much stress to the actual muscle fibers themselves. Right. In, in that very
1: specific case, I could be developing this muscular endurance by doing some submaximal arc training where I'm on the wall for 10 minutes climbing out a perceived effort of three out of 10, or I could use an uneven uh, grip and a tin deck and do a 30% pull, or maybe it would be less than that because I'm not using my feet and this kind of thing, right? And you're saying in that scenario, the climbing is actually the less effective way to do it?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm thinking the fingerboard more than the climbing stuff. Like definitely the fingerboarding would be less effective than isolating the muscle. So if I was doing like my 120 pound tested max... And I wanted to do a finger endurance protocol off the wall. People will do 7-3 repeaters to a grip loss at 60%. Kind of like the critical force testing that Lattice does. I could also do that on the Deck. My load would be 72 pounds. So I would try and curl and hold 72 pounds. And then relax. Curl 72 pounds. Relax. And do that to a percentage loss. But I can track it way more easy with the Tindec because I can actually see my muscle forces. The other thing that's really important when it comes to the difference in contraction types and fatigue, like it's it's very obvious if I'm tired and I'm doing a concentric muscle contraction. It's much more challenging if I'm tired to detect that with an eccentric muscle contraction because the muscle is so much more efficient. Right. So even in the case, and one of the pitches that I made last week at the conference was, a lot of times when we do fingerboarding protocols, we're already tired. We go into it with a bit of fatigue. But if I do my finger training protocol under fatigue, that's a complete waste of my time if I'm trying to build strength, mm. right? And I could still do a really heavy load on a fingerboard, though, because those that type of fatigue doesn't influence that type of muscle contraction. Conversely, if I measured it and I was measuring the concentric force, my numbers would be down. It would be much more apparent. When I was tired, compared to if I was not measuring it. Yeah, which is another important part about strength training. Yeah, I'm curious
1: on that. If you're measuring it against a historical max pull, so 170. Let's say, no, I'm sorry, you were 120 is what you were pulling when you isolated, just like with the tin deck. Maybe on a fresh day with two days rest, and you had caffeine, and like that was 120. Now, if a few days later you're doing, you're working your finger strength training in between sets of squat and deadlift and there's overall fatigue and maybe you didn't sleep very well the night before, you get the TINDEC and you use the repeater part of that program, which I think is, they just did an update fairly recently and it's, it works really nicely. So you can test your max within that and then just input a percentage of that max that you want to do in the, in the set rep and, and this kind of thing. So let's say you go to test your, your max on this day where you're not feeling as as 100%, as strong, and it comes out to 100 pounds instead of 120. At that point, would you still do, let's say you're trying to work at 70% to do some repeaters, would you do 70% of that 100 and still do the protocol? Or would you just recognize straight off the bat, oh, I'm like way low on my max right now. There's not much of a point for me to do this.
0: If it was a maximum strength day, I would say don't do it. If it was a, if you were building capacity, probably okay, but what you would do is you would just adjust the numbers. Right. But think about that if, if, you, if you don't have the ability to know how to adjust the numbers and you just do the percentage max from when you tested. So now what are you doing to the finger flexors? You have general fatigue in the muscle. You can overload the muscle more because you can load the connective tissues. And slowly over time, those kinds of habits is what gets us injured. And so we want to try and minimize that as much as we possibly can, but it's really hard to do that on a fingerboard. Like some of the testing that I've done in my office with the SMO2 monitors, which measure muscle activity in real time on a fingerboard, having people do things to failure, you can get like a muscle failure mechanism or lack of recovery before you get a grip loss. So you can see in real time that the muscle is tired and it's not recovering, but you could still do more reps of a fingerboarding protocol.
1: Interesting. And there's no benefit
0: there. There's no, no. What's the point? The point is like loading your finger. You're loading the hell out of your middle fingers. You're not really, because the point of a muscular endurance protocol is to load the muscle and make the muscle more fatigue resistant, not overload the joints of the fingers. Because we do that when we're climbing all the time, but doing it at a greater load makes very little sense.
1: Well, this this really resonates because before I got the tin Deck and I don't always use the tin Deck, Sometimes I'm I'm doing some max hangs on the on my lattice board because that was pr- what was programmed for me, or I'm just mixing it up, or or whatever. And maybe I'm doing a, a testing. In any event, I think a lot of people work out that way, and so at the beginning of a training cycle, we'll have a great day and we'll we'll figure out what our max hang is. You know, for me, I can hang sixty pounds on my body weight on the 20 mil edge for five seconds or whatever kind of standard you're using. And then every workout for the next two months or three months, you just reference back to that. You say, okay, well, I need to do 80% of that or 50% of that or 90% of that. And maybe only a handful of days is your max actually that. So are you actually hitting the target? Other days, like you're saying, you might be fatigued, but we as climbers don't want to recognize that and say, you know what, I'm just going to take 15 pounds more off of this you'll just try that much harder just to try to get it to be where you want it to be or where you think it should be and what i'm hearing from you is that's not only inadequate training you won't get gains but it's also injurious
0: for sure it's it's risky but you'll still be able to do it because we as climbers don't have a lack of try hard that's kind of our own demise is we like We'll say, oh, I'm tired and don't feel good, but I'm still going to go and I'm going to grind away at the workout, right? And there's some value and some argument to be made to just getting the things done all the time is great. But if we look at like the research on velocity-based training, a velocity loss is the most sensitive measure to detect fatigue. But we don't really, we can't really do that on the fingers because we're not doing like a range of motion that actually measures the velocity. So force is the best thing that we have. So in the context of just like making sure you get the workouts done, you can auto-regulate the intensity and drop the intensity some days, make it harder some days. That's okay. Like in, on the whole, that's going to be more satisfactory to your adaptation than it would be just being really rigid and assuming that you're 5% stronger every session, because you're definitely not going to be.
1: Man, this is great. I love this. I mean, it again points to um, the benefit of of having something that can measure, like a tin deck, if, if one can have access to that or afford it. But if not, it really highlights how important it is for us to try to be extra sensitive to how we're feeling on any given day and giving ourselves the permission to either skip a workout, if it's a max strength workout, or deload if we're trying to build capacity, but we're not feeling like we're getting the reps in like we had. You know, if, if I was usually able to get six reps on five sets, and I'm like, you know, bearing down at max effort to try and get my sixth rep in on my second set, that's probably an indication that the load is too heavy for that workout. Are are there any other ways that one can try to dial in the load, the intensity, besides what we've touched on?
0: I mean, it's pretty hard. You want to go based on like having a normal routine. I like the idea of having a normal routine, whether it's doing some strength training before you're climbing. I think now the more I do it, the more it makes more sense to just do it every day before you're climbing. If you do the same kinds of routines every time, you'll get a better sense of how they feel. And so you can use that, you know, because everyone's pretty in tune with their body and how they feel on those days. It gets harder with certain types of muscle contractions, obviously, because they're going to be able to tolerate more load, even if you're tired, but that's the best option that people have. But those tools aren't that expensive. I think the tool is $150 US, you know, in terms of like fingerboards, fingerboards are usually that that much money, you know, and so it's like, it's worth the investment in so many different ways uh, for athletes. And that's why now they're, you know, becoming so popular is it just gives people breath of fresh air that they can retest their numbers all the time. So if people are really rigid about doing weighted hangs, that's fine be rigid about it, but like retest your numbers every other week and see what your, or every session and see what your numbers should look like. Cause they're going to change and you're probably going to have to adjust the loads more than you think you can. And that should be less risky overall.
1: Yeah. Good man. Well, we're landing this thing right on time. I think there's going to be some follow-ups. I know we're going to get some questions, but we'll include videos. And I really appreciate the thought that you put into this. Like you put a ton of research, a ton of science behind this. And then you also give a lot by, by making these videos. So I'm grateful for your time. Is there any closing point that you have, or can we put to rest for eternity finger strength as it pertains to rock climbing?
0: Jeez. I don't, I, I don't know We're like, I've asked like researchers in the field, kind of like, you know, mentors of mine that I've probe for questions and learn from about like these methodologies and do they really make sense? And undoubtedly all of them say, nah, that doesn't really make sense for strength training. And so again, it's not that they're all bad ideas because it's an evolution, right? We're all like evolving and learning about how we train and what we do over periods of time, you know? So hopefully it's not coming at like too much counterculture for climbing, right? It's just like it's really an attempt at being productive for all of us kind of getting better at what we're doing. But, and I'm biased because I talk to people with finger injuries all day long, but they're all doing the same things. And so there's got to be something with those things that are kind of the culprit for why we're getting these injuries. And the doctors from last week, they all see the same things. And so it's really, we got to be more critical of all the things we're doing to really understand how we can like train better and not get injured so much because the injuries now, finger injuries are number one. It used to be shoulders, but fingers have surpassed shoulders in terms of the number one injury in climbers. And a lot of that has to do obviously with indoor climbing and maybe the style, but without question, it has to do with training.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, how long do you think it takes from a medical point of view? And you've been using yourself as a bit of a guinea pig, N equals one on, on some of this, but how much time do you think we'll need to put into this finger training 2.0, where we'll be able to see, are people climbing harder? Are they staying healthier? What have you seen with yourself?
0: For sure. Like with my clients, the people that use bigger edges and unlevel edges and get away from really long duration things and modify it for sure are seeing improvements like with their performance on the wall, you know, as well as like having less stiffness and soreness in their joints just all the time. And that's a combination of volume management, edge size use protocols, et cetera. So and now, because there's so many people getting a hold of these measuring devices and they're more affordable, just seeing the numbers is very obvious. Like the, And like for me, I was amazed that like I've posted protocols and I've kind of posted some of these older ones of me doing the no hang stuff in 2017. Like these are not new ideas right. like for me and for other people probably, but I didn't really understand what was happening and why they were different until I had these this education series that I did. And then... Talked with one of my female clients who cannot do a one-arm hang that's stronger, has stronger fingers than me. But she was trying to convince me to program for her how she could do a 20 mil one-arm hang. I was like, why do you want to do that? Like, I can do that, but who cares? But she can't do it. She climbs harder than me consistently. So I had her flip the test. So when I did the pull-down test, my numbers were stronger than hers because my upper body is stronger than hers. When we inverted the body, we did the isolated curl. Her strength-to-weight ratio was higher than mine. Hmm. So like, then I was like, oh my God, like, why did I not see this before now? And it really is just a difference in muscle size and connective tissue loading and all these other structures. So it just like, you know, it takes time for people to change their habits for sure. So I don't have any idea why that's going to happen.
1: Well, it's starting to happen now, man. This hour and a half here, I think is going to go a long way, but also the content that you continue to put out is really helping us to overcome some of the just learned kind of paths the the misconceptions as as it pertains to training so I think there are going to be healthier stronger climbers out there thank you as always dude this was an awesome conversation
0: yeah thank you that was a great pun at the end there by the way to overcome you said to overcome these things <laughs> I was like oh yeah did them nice let's
1: <laughs> see that I didn't even I didn't even realize I was doing the best puns are the ones that you don't know you're even doing. that wraps up our chat with dr tyler nelson from camp for human performance now if you're like me your brain just got about as much of a workout as your fingers are about to and that's what makes these deep dives with tyler so great so let us know what you thought of this one and if you have any questions i'm sure you do you can find us on insta at c4hp and at the struggle climbing show You can also check out Tyler's YouTube channel, which he's throwing a ton of fantastic content behind, including visual representations of a lot of what we covered here in depth in this podcast. So pop over and check that out. You can also, of course, check out the Struggle Climbing Show's YouTube channel while you're at it. Now, for patrons and subscribers, you have got some exclusive bonus content coming at you right now where Tyler shares his view on seasonality, including what to train and what to cut as you get into your performance phase how to maintain strength in season, and how to think about minimal edge training based on the type of climbing that you do or the grade that you're climbing. Just listen through to the end of this wrap-up here, and after the music ends, that bonus content will begin. Now in a second, I'm going to hit you all with my takeaways from this awesome conversation, but first, a quick shout-out to the awesome brands who are bringing you this episode at zero cost and who are offering up some pretty sick deals. Let's give it up for Kaya, the most thoughtful and well-designed app when it comes to researching and logging your boulders, whether that's in the gym or out at the crag. Use the link in your show notes to download Kaya for free or to try out the pro version and have the beta of more than 35 well-designed, well-thought-out guidebooks right in your hand. A big chalky fist bump to our friends over at Friction Labs, whose performance chalk is free of fillers and drying agents, which means you can chalk up less, which saves you money, but it also cuts down on the impact to the routes that we climb on. Love that. Pop over to FrictionLabs.com and use code STRUGGLE20 for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less, climb more with Friction Labs. And lastly, to our friends over at Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, Check out their supercharged collagen to keep your fingers healthy and strong as you train the heck out of them this season. In Europe, you can find it on the Epic TV and Banana Fingers online shops, and in the U.S. at select gyms and, of course, at fizzyvantage.com. You can hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. All right, takeaway time here. I mean, this conversation was so nutrient-dense, it's kind of hard to tease out just a few takeaways, but I'll try. Uh, I think, honestly, for me, perhaps the most significant thing was that when I thought I was strength training, I was often more in the hypertrophy zone because I was doing a hang, like a heavy hang on an edge for 7 to 10 seconds. And as Tyler shared, that's too long for true strength training. So now I'm using a tin deck, which I love, and an unlevel edge, which I love, to do those overcoming iso pulls from the floor. And I just spike that thing as hard as I can for like two seconds, maybe three seconds at the absolute most. And then I rest for maybe 10 seconds and I do it again. So it's really a fast protocol and it's plenty of recovery between goes. And I've also been doing that at the crag as part of my warmup and also in between burns. And I feel really primed for the climb when I pull back on. So my fingers are feeling strong and they're far less strained than when I was hanging like really heavy weight on a flat 20 millimeter edge. So I'm liking this new routine. And by the way, speaking of the tin deck, In the show notes, I've got a link to the Tindex site. And if you use the coupon code C4HP, you can get yourself $10 off. So I think it makes it $140. I think it's well worth the spend if you can afford it. And if not, then obviously there's like a million other ways to train fingers, as we discussed here in this chat. I really hope you got a lot out of it. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, I'm just working really hard over here to bring you interviews and content that I hope is helping you to improve at this sport that we all love so, so much. And if you'd like to hear more from Tyler in just a minute here, that bonus content as well as more than 20 hours of other exclusive content from pros, including Alex Johnson, Jordan Cannon, Ravioli Biceps, Chris Sharma, Alex Honnold, and more, you're going to get extended and ad-free episodes. You're going to get pro clinics. Plus, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling of supporting me as I'm working my harness off over here in the podcast slash utility closet. You can do all of that over at patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show or you could simply subscribe through Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. Thank you so much for considering coming aboard. You can cancel any time, so if you think it sucks, just you know, try it for a month and then bail. Also, a huge shout out to the Honnold Foundation for making the struggle climbing show carbon neutral. They're doing such amazing work, you guys, to bring clean energy to communities around the world. You can check out their latest grant recipients at honoldfoundation.org. They are supporting some amazing projects in the community around the world, so check it out and toss them some love if you can. Lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective a diverse Group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Dellin. I hope your fingers are getting strong this season and that your training and climbing are going great. If you're struggling, well, just remember, The Struggle makes us stronger. See y'all.